There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Rachel Faulkner-Brown of Milton, Georgia, co-founder of Be Still Ministries and director of its Never Be Alone Widows Retreats. Rachel experienced the instant loss of two husbands herself, one to an aneurysm and one in an Air Force plane crash by the time she was 31. As a result of her losses, Rachel began organizing retreats to empower military and first responder widows so they feel known and have a safe community to turn to. Rachel loves marriage so much that she took a chance on it again and married for a third time. Rachel Faulkner-Brown, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you, Chris. What a joy to be with you. I mean, I always say, let's do the next right thing. So I love the title of your podcast. No, thank you. And just so our listeners are aware, you know, I mentioned briefly about Rachel's past. So when I reached out to her a month or so ago to be on the show, her immediate response was, how fun, exclamation point, exclamation point, smiley emoji. So got a lot of energy, a lot of spunk with us today. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. You know, the millennials hate our use of emojis. They think we're, it's overrated. I don't. I can't even talk without them. I'm like, how do you talk without an emoji? <laughs> it's going to be like a, in the dictionary now, like to Google's a verb. Emoji is going to be some action that we do. So it'll be a noun or a verb. Emoji. Totally. So Rachel, you've called yourself a girl with a past, like your worst nightmare and a present that is pretty darn fun. Mm -hmm. That's a very upbeat way to view life as someone who has twice widowed by the time you were 31. Tell us how you met your first husband, Todd Faust, what the courtship was like, when you were married, how your life was during that marriage. I'm throwing a lot of you, you know, a lot of details to take some time to share that story. Yeah, totally. So, you know, for me, I um, grew up in a small southern town in Alabama and just kind of had a really picturesque life. My, it, I was thinking about this the other day. My granddaddy would wear Bermuda shorts and wingtip shoes every day to the lake and taught all my friends how to water ski. That was kind of my growing up. It was really precious. But um, I, you know, went to college, met Todd Faust. He drove through the parking lot the first day. Um, that I was actually on campus at our college and he had a license plate that said T Faust. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like he is rich. Like no one I know has spent the extra $50 at the DMV to get <laughs> a personalized license plate. So I was like, Oh my gosh, he's cute. He's rich. And he was driving a Toyota Celica. And in 94, that was like the car, you know, with a spoiler. And I was like, Oh my gosh, a spoiler, like got to meet this guy. And and so we went um, out on our first date and, you know, pretty much he took me to watch Rudy with his mom. And I, I really, you know, we went to dinner and then we went and watched Rudy. And I think, golly, like if my son brought his girlfriend over to watch Rudy with me, I would be like, what? I love her. And you're like, you're such a great kid. you know. <laughs> so um, it was, it was amazing. And we dated all four years of college. Todd was president of Sigma Chi. He was, um, you know, on the student government association. We were kind of like, you know, we were just all involved. Our school was about a school of 5,000 people. So it was pretty easy to be, really involved and he ran cross country. So it was like super healthy. And what's funny is at this point, I didn't even work out. I never worked out a day in my life. And here he is like waking up at, you know, 530 in the morning to go run eight miles and then running again at three o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, wow, that was one thing that we definitely didn't have in common. But he, um, he was just in the all, he was just an all American guy and we got married. Um, he proposed and we got married the weekend after I graduated in 98 and just moved immediately to Tuscaloosa. I started graduate school. He was working for a pharmaceutical company and, um, our life was beautiful. It was like any newly married. I mean, I was 21, which is like, you know, today nobody gets married at 21. So it's like basically Mary got married, you know, it was like Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's so young. Like I look at Davis, my son's 15 and I'm just like, oh my gosh, I was married six years from this moment. And that just blows my mind. So 
here he is, um, you know, working in Tuscaloosa and we get an opportunity to move back and they offer me a job with his pharmaceutical company. So we were like Eli Lilly and company, Florence, Alabama. I mean, we were living the dream, dual income, no kids with a dog. We we're like the marketer's dream. And just living this beautiful life, you know, we're very involved in our Sunday school class and I was planning all the parties. He was planning all the sports events and, you know, when they were going to play basketball, you know, what you do when you don't have kids, (laughs) where are we playing basketball this week? And um, life was beautiful. And on Sunday, September 16th, so it was, um, uh, you know, a half second after September 11th, 2001, um, life just radically, radically changed for us. Um, and I don't know if you want me to keep going, but, um, you know, the September 11th changed all of us. I mean, there's not a one of us probably listened to this podcast that, that their life wasn't dramatically affected by that day. And we were no different. I was sitting in my office just like I'm right now. I was watching the today show. I saw the, the plane hit the tower. I actually had a friend in the tower on the 65th floor. And, um, you know, I was just, I remember calling my dad that day, Chris, and being like, should I leave the house? You know, cause we didn't know if this was going to start happening. And I mean, it really felt like Armageddon. I know you, you can relate. Um, and I remember gas gouging that day, that afternoon, I finally did leave the house. And I remember gas being like $4 a gallon in Florence, Alabama. And at this point, I was paying 99 cents a gallon. So, you know, it was just like, we were just all over the place mentally that week. And then on that Sunday, we go to church, you know, it was like, we all remember that day going to church. I think everybody in America went to church on the 16th of September. And we had gone to eat barbecue afterward. And I remember us talking about having babies. We've been married three and a half years. And Todd went to play. He had organized a game of pickup basketball that afternoon. And he went to play that game of basketball. And I went to a wedding shower. And I got a phone call as, as soon as I walked to the door that he had been hurt. And she said, I think he broke his leg, my best friend. And I was like, okay, be right there and raced and saw his best friend at the gas station. You know, it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody. I started calling my parents and saying, I think Todd's been hurt. And um, I pulled up onto the scene and Todd had, um, he was 27 and he had had a massive aneurysm. Um, And here I was 23 years old, you know, our life just in front of us having just walked through September 11th and I'm having my personal September 11th. And he had, um, you know, lost a heartbeat. We had a doctor there on site playing basketball, one of our doctors that we called on and he had started CPR, but I couldn't go in the ambulance. So we raced to the ER and they, it was just like you see in the show ER, they came through the doors and they said, Miss Faust, you know, we did everything we could. And I mean, to say the devastation at that age when you just, when you've never experienced anything, you know, bad things happen to bad people, but bad things don't happen to good people at 23. You know, it was just like, I'd lost a dog. I'd lost a grandparent. I'd never lost a friend and I'd certainly never lost anyone that age. And, um, yeah, I mean, to say the lights went out on my future is like an understatement, but, um, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was the moment that, um, you know, they came through those doors and I remember walking back through and I don't talk about this often, but I remember laying my body over Todd's and looking down, he still had on his basketball shoes. And I, I, I like for those of us who've lost family members or those of us who've been in that moment where someone passes, um, the enormity of the loss is just, it's just so heavy. And then I'm sitting there watching his parents lose a child and, you know, I'm losing someone that I've been, you know, with for seven and a half years. And, you know, it's, it just, it doesn't feel real. I mean, you, I literally felt like I was dreaming and then I come out through the double doors to leave and there are hundreds of people because no one could believe that Todd Faust had passed away. And, um, you know, I, I, we went back home, which is what do you do? You know, you can't stay there. So we go back home and my sweet friend, Melanie was standing in my kitchen. And at this point in Melanie's life, she had been in college with us. Her husband was a fraternity brother of Todd. She'd grown up, you know, in um, a religious home, just like the rest of us. But 
Melanie had just kind of, you know, gotten married and walked away. Basically, she was just like, I'm never going to be good enough. I just can't. I just, you know, whatever. And she looked around and saw this community, saw our Sunday school class, saw our whole church practically in my den. And she just thought, I have no idea, one, who would be here if this happened to me. And it was just that, that, you know, nothing actually, you know, nothing brings clarity to your life like death. Nothing, nothing can bring clarity to your life like death. And she looked around and she knew in that moment, oh my gosh, like I, I don't even know that I know God, you know, I mean, I've said that Jesus loves me, but do I really believe that? And so we sat down in my uh, bedroom and I mean, to say she stood up a new creation is, I don't know what I said, Todd had just died three hours earlier. And here I am, you know, sitting with this friend who's so desperate because she is just, she is so clear on eternity. She is so clear on eternity. And, um, and I was, I was very clear that Todd was with Jesus. I knew where he was. I was so confident of that. And at the same time, you know, watching her hurt. And I don't know what I said, you know, Matthew 10, 20 says, when you can't speak for yourself, the Holy Spirit will speak for you. And that is 1000% what happened. I just opened my mouth and she received Jesus, you know, I mean, and she stood up and her life's never been the same. And so, you know, I look back at that story, Chris, and I always, I cannot look back at that story and see anything but Todd, his beautiful wife, and and Melanie and the generations that come behind her. And that's just one story, you know? I mean, there were lots more people whose lives were radically altered by Todd's, but she's my, it is well, you know? So thank you for sharing that. And in that respect, Todd's death changed the lives of many others, you know, in this case, Melanie. How do those changes play out even today, years after his passing? Yeah. You know, it's so interesting um, because I think Todd was um, the first of our friends in that fraternity who passed away. We've had some since. And that was the first funeral that that generation in his fraternity had ever done. You know, they have a white rose ceremony at the funeral for people who are in, you know, the fraternity. And I think it was the first time that any of them had ever participated in that. And I think if you interviewed, you know, 20 of the Sigma Chi's who were there that day, they would say that Todd's funeral changed my life. Um, and, and then they would also say that, you know, it altered their path because when you're in college, you are not, you know, you are not thinking about death. Let's be honest. Like you are, that is not your thought never. And so I think it really, as it did for Melody, it really, Melody, it clarified what was important. And I'm still seeing that, you know, I'm still friends with most of them on Facebook, even today. And um, I think they would all say they missed Todd because he was such a big person. He was just, he wasn't a big person, but he was just such a big personality. And um, I think more than anything else, though, for people listening who've lost a child, you know, I've been married, obviously, again, but that seat at their table, no matter which husband, if, you know, who sits in that seat when I'm with them, it's Todd's seat. And so I think for me, it has given me a compassion for for parents who lose children um, more than even for myself, because I know that although I marry again, they will never, and I'll never have taught again, but they will really, you know, that is a hole left in a family where the dynamic of siblings change, the not the dynamic of their future trips, like everything changes when you lose a child. And so that whole, Although God feels it, yes, there is a presence that is lost for all of us, but it's so different to lose a child. And so I always say the worst, you know, death to me, a divorce to me is worse than death. And um, and losing a child, there is like, if you're wanting to compare, like we don't need to do that. But at the end of the day, I think you just, the loss of losing a child is just exponential. So the loss of a spouse at any age can be a crushing emotional weight, but to have that happen in your early twenties seems especially cruel to me. 
Yeah. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, but certainly those who have experienced a heavy loss, would like to know, how did you begin to heal and how long did it take for you to begin to feel like things were getting back to, you know, I don't want to use the word normal, but yeah, whatever normal was, or do things ever really get back to normal? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, I will say I did a terrible job. So I'm just going to say I'm not the poster child for how to heal after loss. I mean, I uh, look back, I went to work two weeks after Todd passed away. I never went to a counselor. Let me see all the things that I never did. Um, I did not go through the stages of grief. I never went to grief share. When you are so young and the people in, you know, a grief share class or in any kind of grief recovery, they're older. I was like, how in the world am I going to relate to these people? I wish that somebody would have said, Rachel, let down your pride and go get some help because I just thought I'm strong. I'm okay. I have a very high capacity for joy. And so I looked so fine. There's literally never been a day that I haven't woken up and thought it was going to be a good day. But at the end of the day, I was a very emotionally bankrupt person. And what I mean by that is I did not know how to feel, Chris. And I think this comes, um, you know, I hate to say a Southern culture, but it, we breed, we breed children and, and kids and, you know, adults who just say it's fine and it's not fine. And we don't know how to communicate emotions. We're not brought up with um you know, our parents were raised, I'm 44. So my parents were raised by depression babies who had to just survive. You know, I mean, they were just so happy. They were, I mean, talk about washing out the Ziploc bags. I mean, that was like their life, you know? And so like to complain that things aren't great when you have a roof over your head and food on your table, it feels just ridiculous. And so, I, but I think that breeds a generation of, of kids who are, you know, I will say there's, there's some value to that because we are resilient. And then there's also this really lack of emotional health that I see in so many of, you know, my friends and people that I know. It's like we can't really attack. We don't know how to attach emotion to what we're feeling or to talk about it because we just don't have an emotional vocabulary. So I was like beyond, beyond bankrupt in emotional vocabulary. And so I would, but what I did do is I worshiped and I would sit on my floor and I would listen to Fernando Ortega's. I actually heard it this morning, which is so funny. Um, I would sit on my floor and listen to Fernando Ortega's Give Me Jesus. And I I had no idea what I was doing. But worship and music alone, music will take you out of your thinking brain into an elevated creative brain. And I had no idea that I was actually taking the focus off my own self and the weightiness of grief onto the Lord and his goodness. And so I look back and I'm like, well, golly, that was the smartest thing I did. Um, Cause I did a lot of whole, lot of other dumb things. Um, you know, and I will say for, for those of you who are going through grief, look at the things where you are hiding because I would go on Saturdays, I would just make like wear out a path from TJ Maxx to Hobby Lobby to all my little stores. And I overdrafted like five times after Todd died because I just, I had no control over my finances. And I look back and I think, wow, that was so broken too. Like, I mean, I would say, you know, get somebody to get in the weeds with you on your budget and how you spend money and Oh my gosh, I wish, you know, I'm so thankful that the Lord introduced me to Dave Ramsey through my brother and sister-in-law at that time. They were like doing the baby steps. They were like, go to Huntsville with me to this thing. And I was like, okay, I guess. And of course, um, I went and it changed my life. I love Dave. I'm so grateful for him. I would drive around in my car as a drug rep and listen to Dave Ramsey. I'd call in on the show like a crazy person. I still can't believe I called in on the show. I'm like, who's calling in on Dave Ramsey at 25 years old? But I was just so hungry. Um, my parents were very financially, fiscally responsible, but they didn't teach me about debt. And they didn't teach me... Um, you know, I mean, they taught me how not to have it, but I just, I didn't know finances. So all that to say, I did a lot of things to heal um, that I didn't even know were good. And one of those was worship. So. When did you meet your second husband, Blair Faulkner? 
Oh, yes. Blair Faulkner. Actually, <laughs> Blair was supposed to be an usher at our wedding, at mine and Todd's wedding, which is just amazing. He was, um, you know, off in the wild blue yonder flying somewhere, so he couldn't come home for our wedding, which was, you know, we were so sad, but I didn't know him. He was just a family friend. So we actually have pictures of Todd and Blair burying each other in the sand on Jekyll Island as children, as like, you know, seven and 11, you know, it's just seven and 12 or however what the difference was between them. I mean, I look back at those pictures and I'm like, who would have thought the common denominator in this photo would have been me? You know, it's just like, what? But um, I saw Blair um, the Thanksgiving after Todd passed away a year later, I saw him driving and um, he was with a family for another family friend that I knew. And I had given, I had given Blair's mom a birthday party in my, in mine and Todd's apartment. I mean, like I knew his parents better than I knew him. And so I was like, gosh, Blair Faulkner loves Jesus He's a fighter pilot, which is so sexy. I mean, let's be honest. Like <clears throat> I always say, you can be the ugliest person ever and look good in a flight suit. Like we just have this amnesia, what people look like when you have on a flight suit. <laughs> but Blair was cute and he looked great in a flight suit. And um, it was, you know, I was just like, wow. I mean, he needs a wife. He loves Jesus. I should sign up for that. And of course, you know, my mom, small town, my mom and Blair's mom talked together. They kind of had a little chat about it. I don't know how, somehow we got connected. And um, he asked, you know, he ended up, we ended up having our first date the day before Christmas Eve. And he brought me a Beth Moore devotional. And I had, you know, I hadn't kissed a whole lot of frogs at this point, but I had had several dates and they had not brought me Beth Moore devotionals. One of them brought me, a teddy bear that played the Alabama fight song. And I just thought, oh my, oh my, this is definitely, I just need to stop this date right now. Like if you're bringing me a teddy bear at 25, we have problems. <laughs> oh my gosh. But anyway, so Blair brought me this um, devotional and I remember just thinking, this is it. This is it. I remember truly knowing I was going to marry him that night, which sounds so crazy. But when you've been widowed, you just, you have this knowing of exactly what you want in a husband. And, um, and so anyway, two weeks later, I told him I couldn't even help myself. I told him I loved him. We've gone to new Orleans. He lived in new Orleans. So he flew the A-10 in new Orleans, which is the warthog for those of you listening. It's an amazing plane. It's so sexy. And, you know, he shot the gallon gun and dropped bombs. And, you know, here I was selling drugs. I was like, we're just like quite the combo, you know, quite the combo. And um, I kept, you know, we kept up the long distance thing. We got engaged in April and married in July. It was, you know, the second amazing, amazing wedding. And um, life was just, it was stunning. I mean, we, we had a list of a hundred restaurants in new Orleans and that again, dual income, no kids with a dog. That was our, our life was eating our way through new Orleans. So it was, it was just a great life. You joked as your second marriage began that you felt protected. The guy would not take your second husband, even as he a flight specialist, flight mission specialist in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. He made it home safely from there this time, but sadly you learned on April 23rd, 2008, that you weren't protected, were you? Mm -hmm. Can you describe the day that Blair was killed? Yeah. So I was, um, you know, I will say it's so interesting. I, I think about protection so differently now because at the end of the day, I know God never left me on that day, April 23rd. Um, you know, Blair was doing what he did. He was an instructor pilot at the time. He had a 21-year-old student whose wife was seven months pregnant, and they went out on a mission and that morning, he was flying three times that day, and the mission at 1230, they took off, and the cable in the wing of his T-38 um, could have never known. It would have taken, like, I think they have a 15-year um, you know, analytics of the plane, and it would have been the 15-year analytics that would have picked this up. And um, yeah, he and he and Matthew took off. The, the cable snapped. They had no lift from the left. Um, uh, whatever you call it, flap, and they couldn't take off. And they, so they immediately flipped and Matthew and Blair were, uh, are killed instantly um, from blunt force trauma to the head. Um, they both ejected, but obviously the ejection seat between zero and 50 does not work the way it's supposed to. You just don't have the trajectory. You don't have the lift. And so 
they were both killed and I was left with a five month old and a two year old on that, um, on that beautiful, I can still remember the day it was that crisp April morning. And I just, you know, it's so, it's so interesting looking back and thinking how we would joke, Oh God would never allow that to happen. And, and the reality is, is that Chris, I really believe that because we live in this fallen world, that there are so many things that happen that yes, granted God could stop things if he wanted to, but, but the enemy reigns on the earth. And I, I, that's what's so hard. I think for us as believers and me as a believer to understand is that he has dominion over this earth. And so these terrible things, cancer and disease, and this is just the result of sin in the, on the earth, not our sin, but just the general world. And so I look back and I'm like, you know, people always want somebody to blame. I'm like, blame the enemy, you know, because that's what happened that day. The enemy won, you know, but yet he didn't, he didn't win. I mean, that's what's so crazy because you know, I will say uh, more people through Blair's death have come to know Jesus. You know, Genesis 50, 20, it says what you intended for harm, God intended for good and for the saving of many lives. And I, I quote that verse all the time because honestly, that is our life. Like the enemy intended to take me out for the second time and he was not successful. He was horribly unsuccessful. And like, honestly, I wake up every day and I, he regrets, he regrets that he messed with me twice, you know, because I, that, and I think that happens to people. We are so resolved when you, when you walk in the kingdom and when you walk in light and when you know that the heart is where the good is. Oh man. I mean, there is just this knowing in me that, um, yeah, way, way more damage than if he, if it hadn't happened. So which is hard to admit, but true. We've been talking to Rachel Faulkner-Brown, founder of Bistro Ministries, and one of the most extraordinarily upbeat people I've ever had the joy to know. I'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear, just be you, a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. 
listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. Okay, we are back with Rachel Faulkner-Brown. So, Rachel, here's a fun story we have to share with folks. You and your family have had experiences with not one, but two U.S. presidents. We'll get to the second one a little bit later in the show, but the first one involved President George W. Bush when Blair was killed. Yeah. Did you take it from there for us, please? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. You know, there's so many moments with death uh, where, you know, you just have to laugh. And this was definitely one of them. Of course, we'd already done this once with Todd and they have a very different civilian funeral and um you know to do it uh, with the military was just a whole different ball game and the day of you know any service member passing away if the president can he calls them and so he called our home phone um i don't know i mean obviously he got the number from the base well my mom answered the phone it was president bush at the time and my mom answers the phone and and they say this is office of the president we'd like to speak to Miss Faulkner, you know, and my mom thought it was a joke. And so she says to them, this is no time for joking. My son-in-law has just passed away. Like, you know, obviously, and basically just hung up on him. I don't even know what she said, but I'm still like, how did that happen? Like, I mean, I think you're just so in the moment and so many things are happening. Of course, I've got, you know, a baby who's crying and I mean, just life was so chaotic that day. I I can't even describe to you. And there were like, you know, hundreds of people outside our house and all these people waiting on us. And our family was two hours away. And anyway, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty classic. (laughs) Did you you ever try and call back or was he too afraid? Well, you know, Jeff Sessions was our um, was our representative at the time. And so Jeff tried to get a call through my father-in-law. I was like, I don't need that. I'm so busy. I know he appreciates, you know, Blair's service and I'm so grateful, but I'm changing some diapers here, you know? So it was, <laughs> oh gosh, it was just such a season of, um, you know, dumbfoundedness, um, fog. And, you know, I think for most widows, like you really don't, I don't know that you're, you're definitely never the same, but I will say the fog lasted for me for about a year. I look back at Campbell's pictures and I'm just like, she was my baby. And I'm like, I was there, I was there, but I wasn't present. And there's such a big difference. Yeah, I totally understand. Mm-hmm. So we said at the top of the podcast that you love marriage. <laughs> I haven't forgotten your third husband, Rod Brown. We we're just talking about the power of prayer and praying for others. How did the prayers of others and maybe a nudge or two connect you and Rod? And what was he doing and how did you two meet? Yeah, so interesting. I was just talking about this this weekend because we were, we travel with this other couple, Tom and Stacy, and they had met Rod almost 16 years ago. And, you know, it's, it's hard for a couple to be friends with a single a lot of times because you're like, you, you love them so much, but it's not like you're going to invite a single and you're, you know, a lot of times you're not going to be like, let's go on our family vacation with us, right? <laughs> and so they had prayed, you know, probably um, a lot for Rod to have a wife so that they could do things together and experience life and travel. And so um, I look at all his friends. Rod was single, 45, never been married, which was, you know, a little concerning to me. I'm not going to lie when someone introduced us. And of course, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, I cannot imagine. I actually signed up for eHarmony and took the test when I was uh, widowed. And I just thought, how can I ever fill out this profile and someone not be terrified of me? I mean, I would be terrified of me. I would never click on somebody's profile that said, oh, they've lost two husbands. Like, no. And so I had to really depend on my friends. So I went, I went on very few dates, one or two a year. I mean, honestly, maybe. And I was single for six years. But I took a chance. Rod was so gracious um, in his email. He was protecting me, but I didn't realize it. It felt just so like ridiculous. Honestly, I was like, well, that's why you're not married. He was like, I don't like to communicate via text or phone calls. I, you know, really uh, want to meet you in person. And I was like, okay, well, clearly this is why you're not married because I live four hours from you. That is not going to be easy. And he wouldn't text me. He wouldn't, he was, he did not want to emotionally connect to someone 
someone he had not been around. Now, looking back, I'm like, that was brilliant. At the time, I was like, that's stupid, you know. Of course, I was on the other end of it, you know. So we met in person and um, he says, and Chris, you'll believe this, but he says, I didn't take a breath for the first 15 minutes because I had a lot to say, you know, I mean. (laughs) I don't get it. What do you mean? (laughs) My life had been crazy. So I was like, okay, this is the deal. I know my life is wild. And of course, his friends, honestly, Rod had been in ministry for almost 20 you know, 19, 18 years. And his friends were seriously concerned. Like, are you sure? He dated widows before, but they were, they were really like, whoa, dude, that one, that one's my, you might want to rethink that if you want to live. And so it was interesting. I didn't have to like convince him or talk him into it, but he was actually dating another Rachel at the time. So I was like, I mean, of course, I didn't know all those until years later, but I'm like, wow, you must have been so confused. Of course, you know, I'm pretty much, um, you know, driving a minivan. I'm pretty sure the other Rachel was not driving a minivan. And I'll never forget our first day. We go to the park, Piedmont Park, and he's like, I'll walk you to your car. And I was like, no, no. I'm good. I got it. Because I was driving that minivan. I was like, oh, please, Lord, this is like the death of me. I mean, you will never, ever want to call me back if you see that I'm driving a minivan. And he walked me to my car. I got a ticket, of course, because I'm sure I was running late and parked in some not good spot. It's downtown Atlanta. It's so hard to park. And so anyway, it was just like wildly embarrassing. But I dreamed about him that night, Chris. And I mean, I'm not a dreamer. I, God typically does not speak to me that way. But I, the one thing that widows really miss is just, it's not, you know, intimacy in the, um, it's just having a person, like having somebody that always knows where you are. And that is what I miss so bad, um, which sounds so bizarre, but, you know, there's, it's rare that anyone you know, unless there's Life's 360 app, it's rare that anyone knows where you are at all times. And especially as a widow, it, it felt, that felt scary to me. And so the one thing I missed was just that pillow talk, just like, how's your day? And let's catch up a little bit. And, and I was just in the crux. And, and so in this dream, I was leaned back in the crux of Rod's arm. And we were, um, you know, just having pillow talk. And I'll, I will never forget sitting straight up in the bed because it was so real. I was like sweating because I thought I had slept with him the first night I met him. So I was like, I ruined my witness. I ruined my witness. <laughs> it was just, just so classic. And I was just terrified that I had like let my, lost myself, you know. And of course, that didn't happen. It was a dream, but it was so real. And I knew in that moment, the Lord was showing me, you're going to feel that again. And I did. And not even two months later, the power went out at some friends that we were at their house. We were actually going to their house. The power went out and he was like, hey, let's just sit down so we don't like hurt ourselves in this pitch black house. And we sat down and he pulled me back in the crux of his arm. And I was like, oh, this is my dream. Oh my gosh, I'm, this is the dream. Like it was so, I, you know, I knew, of course I knew that night. I didn't tell Rod, which was the smartest thing I've ever done. Um, but, but I knew that night that I was probably going to marry him. And um, again, widows doesn't take us long to figure it out. And um yeah, it was, we dated for not very long. We got engaged in April and then we married in June. Our preacher that married us had two dates. One was July 19th, which was mine and Blair's anniversary. And the other was June 28th. I was like, we cannot get married on July 19th. I cannot have two anniversaries that day. And so June 28th of 2013, we were married. It was an amazing day. So when we were talking a month or so ago about you joining me for today's show, you accepted in part because you said, you have no idea of the thousands of people on the other side of the yes. I love that expression. Can you give us an example of what's happened to you on that other side of yes? And what should our audience take from that? Yeah. Mm. Oh my gosh. This is like one day I'm going to write a, a book about this because I just, we just have, we just have no idea how such tiny decisions that we make that feel very insignificant to us how significant they are to um, to the body of Christ, really. And so I look back. So Rod and I were married in 2013. Rod went through anxiety and depression right after we got married. Can't imagine why. <laughs> I mean, 
taking a wife and kids on the same day and moving to the suburbs. Like that would probably make anybody depressed and anxious when you've been single your whole life. But it was really, really difficult. I, you know, we can laugh now, but I'm telling you, I thought I'd ruin my life. I thought I'd ruin my children's life because as a widow, you want, because your husband died a hero, mine did for sure. You want this person, this new person to be your kid's new hero, you know? And so weakness or, you know, for me, I just, you know, I, I grew up in a very just strong, gritty family. And so, you know, and I'd never struggled with depression. So when you haven't struggled with it personally, you're like, oh, come on, you just got everything you wanted, you know, like, aren't you going to be, you're fine, you're fine. Like, this is just a moment. And um, the moment turned into really a nervous breakdown while we were on a mission trip of all things, um, a family mission trip. And you can imagine like the feelings that I was feeling were just, um, you know, I was really angry at the Lord. I did not process through my anger in the grief stage. And so it will come out like you may stuff it and you may stuff it for a lot of years. I did. Um, but that anger is going to come out and it came out on Rod because he was alive. You know, I think that was my thing. I was like, who am I going to be mad at? I mean, you know, and, and anger is not being mad at someone. Anger is processing a feeling. And then there's, you know, it's a secondary emotion. So grief is usually behind it. And I just skipped that phase. I skipped a lot of phases. Um, but here I am, I'm looking over at our bed. Cause I just, I remember so laying in bed and just thinking, I've ruined my life, you know? And so at the end of the day, um, we were, you know, in this dark place. And this woman said to me, she was like, let's go up to this little cottage here in Milton and let's pray with this woman. I was like, oh my God, like, you know, sometimes the last thing you want to do in the hole is like pray, you know, because I really didn't want to pray. I didn't want to talk to Jesus people. I was just like, Ugh. I just hated my life and my existence at this point, which is so okay. The Lord can take it. So we go up to this little cottage. There's this woman there and she's, you know, there's 12 people in the room, two of who I knew and knew my story. Um, and this woman didn't know me at all. And she sits down and she was like, okay, Rachel. And I'm like, hey, this is going to be weird. Like, I've never done anything like this. I've taken prayer requests at Sunday school, but I ain't never done this, you know? And she's like, you know, she was like, your life has been really hard. And I'm like, what? Like, what? Are, how do you know this? Like one. And she said, I see you like a crocus coming up out of the ground and, um, you know, out of the hard winter and you will declare the goodness of God before the nations. And I to say, Chris, that everything in me wanted to fight what she was saying, but everything in me knew what she was saying was true because I knew that I knew that I knew that what had happened to me and even what was currently happening to me, although I was fighting it and hating it, I knew that God, like I always knew there was something way bigger than me going on. And so it was after that, that I thought I had, we had started be still in Huntsville. We had, you know, brought, drug all of these chairs together, all the little coffee table chair, you know, coffee table, um, what car table chairs, you know, that we had brought them together and let women share their stories. And the first time we did it, we had 120 women show up at this, you know, rancher house in Huntsville. And I just thought, wow, like people really want to hear stories. Like this is amazing. And we had no idea what we were doing. We played a worship song on a jam box, two women shared their stories, and then we prayed for people. And it's never changed. We've done it the same way for 10 years, which is just crazy. But in that moment, when Linda prayed for me, it was as much as I was fighting it and resisting it, I knew it was true. And it was right after that, about six months later, that I went and bought 50 chairs from Ikea, slung them in the back of that same minivan and asked some friends, hey, will you host? Because I didn't have that many friends. I just moved here. And I was like, will you host this at your house? Like you have a lot of, you have a community and I really don't hear yet. And we had probably 30 women that first day and it's just grown and grown and grown ever since then. It's still the same. And the, the crux of the ministry is women and their stories and really helping women to see that they're lavishly loved daughters of a king who can release the kingdom of heaven on earth because we think we have to wait to experience heaven till death. And we don't like the Lord's like, 
No, I want you on earth as it is in heaven. That means I want you to experience heaven the moment that you meet the Lord. And I'm just determined that that's possible. And I had no idea making that purchase at Ikea, how many thousands of women would sit in those white chairs and that tiny little prayer meeting in Milton. And I, you hear this all the time, but like I could have never foreseen today, you know, which is seven years later. So you're committed to helping men and women, especially women, as you're talking about, achieve their great purpose, especially in difficult times. Do we all share the same greater purposes? You know, and what are the differences and similarities, if any, between your greater purpose, my greater purpose, and that of our listeners? Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, if you know what breaks your heart, Andy Stanley's my pastor, and he always says, what breaks your heart? There is your purpose. And what breaks my heart, two things, um, the younger version of myself, the widow, uh, 31 years old with two babies who has no community. That breaks my heart. And then the other thing that breaks my heart is a woman who lives with a secret and a man who lives with a secret because I was the child who at 10 years old was abused by a distant family relative, which felt like child's play, but it was not. It actually locked me up in shame for 25 years. And so I look back at my 35-year-old self who was uh, had buried two husbands who really did not know her they did not know me. That's what's so sad. I look back at Blair and I look back at Todd and I'm like, they got a part of me, but they did not get who, and granted, you know, we all shift every five years. I feel like as a generation, you know, we all change and shift, but like, I could not, um, I could not experience. And I actually, actually wrote something down um, or read something today that I thought was just, oh my gosh, it says, The trick is you have to want to experience great, deep, soul-shattering love more than you want to protect yourself from hurt. Because truthfully, we can never guarantee we won't get hurt. But what we can guarantee is that in the process of protecting ourselves, we will also be preventing ourselves from ever feeling fully loved. Mark Groves. And I mean, to say that women and men do not experience receiving love is the understatement of the century. Receiving, period. I mean, women, we can't even take a compliment. If you tell us we look beautiful, we're like, no, my thighs are fat. They're rubbing together. Look at my hair. I've got so many gra- I mean, I'm like, just stop. Just say thank you. I mean, what? It's, I'm, I mean, I have literally to practice taking a compliment. And so I look back and I'm like, Okay, so there's your purpose. Like, what is the crappiest thing that's happened to you? (laughs) I mean, I hate to say that, but honestly, look back over your life. Like, what is that thing that you're like, oh, I wish I could change that? It's like the thing that you, the very thing that you wish you could change is really the thing that leads you to your purpose. It really is. Like, the worst thing that happens to you ends up being the greatest gift that ever was. Like, the good is in the hard. It just is. I can't explain it. It's just the gospel. That's just the way I will work everything for good. He's made that promise to us, and it's so true. I don't know why we just fight it, though. It's like, just go look back through your life and find that thing where you're like, one, that breaks my heart, and two, that was the hardest thing that ever happened to me, because that, to me, is where you'll find your purpose. You've described yourself as a champion of freedom. A lot of people believe that religion and faith are confining, that it creates too many rules to follow. How does your faith give you freedom? Well, that's true if you live in the old covenant. Um, But for a new covenant believer, God said, I am giving you a new heart. I mean, he prophesied this in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take away your heart of stone. Because when you do live in the old covenant, you live as I'm never going to be good enough. And God is always going to be mad at me. And it could not be further from the truth when you recognize the real reality and how good the gospel really is. So I will say religion is confining. Religion is not the goal. I always thought, and you hear people say, oh, I'm so religious. You know, it's like, that ain't the goal. The goal of Christianity is receiving love. 
And honestly, Chris, if that that's like the rest of the gospel, I, I don't think there are very few people that are talking about um, that as being the gospel. But if you know how to receive love from God and you know how to attach, um, man, it changes everything. And I think when you realize that the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, it's all for provision and you get to take the promises and you get to take the protection that the old cup, you know, that the Ten Commandments provides. You get to take all that good stuff, but you get to walk in freedom. And then, you know what the goal is? You know what the whole command is? Receive, receive and believe that Jesus loved you first so that you can love others. I mean, I'm like, oh, this is it, you know, because that changes everything because Honestly, and when you realize, too, that everything that Jesus said, although it's amazing, it does not apply. Everything Jesus said in the in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John does not apply to you. We think it does, but everything he was saying was elevating the law to this place of impossibility for the Pharisees to live up to. And so I know that's pretty theological, but at the end of the day, when you realize that everything he says after the cross Everything changed after the cross. So you have to look at everything that Jesus says. Was this before or after the cross? That literally changed my life. Oh my gosh. So changed my life. So we have about two minutes left. And we mentioned earlier in the show that you and your family have had experiences with two U.S. presidents. (laughs) Can you tell us the funny story about meeting President Trump and praying over him? Oh my gosh. Yes. So I was in, I was in DC last January. It was amazing. Got to go to the white house, Trump hotel, the whole thing. It was, it was insane. I couldn't believe it. I I never met a president face to face. I thought Ivanka was coming to our dinner. President Trump shows up, you know, it's this women's meeting, 100, 150, 75 women. And so I video this prayer. I'm standing really close and I video the prayer and put it on my Instagram, of course. Well, the next morning I get home and Fox News has the prayer and says something about Be Still Ministries. It wasn't even related to Be Still. I could not believe it. I'm like, what? Oh my gosh, this is my prayer. How did I get this? It has nothing to do with Be Still. It's just my personal Instagram. I felt terrible. And the girl who sponsored the dinner was like so upset. And I was like, oh gosh, this is so bad. But I tell you what, it just reminded me like fact checking, very important because that could not have been further from the truth. But I was, I was so privileged to be in the room. I don't care if you agree with them or not. It's an honor to be near a president and to be in the mix of that, just to be in the White House. I I just, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a patriot at heart. So for me, I was like, this is amazing. Yeah, it was was funny. Love that. Rachel Faulkner Brown, thanks so much for being with us today. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details about upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure. We'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.